What if just for the next few days, every time you were met with a challenging behavior, you took that leap of faith and believed that it was about brain function and not about willful defiance? What do you think would happen? Like, let's play that out and how that might look, what path that might lead you down versus jumping to the conclusion that it is willful and what path that leads you down. Because time and time again, when parents take that leap of faith and they're like, okay, everything in my being is telling me that it's willful, but I'm going to take this leap of faith and ask that question, what if, what if this has to do with their brain working differently? What if this has to do with these skills? Every single time it opens up new possibilities, new options in terms of how to support them, new ways in terms of responding to them and deeper connection. Like you just don't go wrong. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm really excited to have a conversation with Eileen Devine on this episode. We're going to talk about seeing your child through a brain-based lens instead of a behavior lens, something that she and I are both pretty passionate about as far as parenting kids who are differently wired, ADHD, autism spectrum, anything like that. This is a really crucial perspective for parents to have. Thanks for being here, Eileen. Can you start just by introducing yourself? Let everyone know who you are and what you do. Oh, sure. And thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited that our paths have crossed and really excited to be here. So um, I live in Portland, Oregon. I have a private practice where I work with parents who have kids with what I call neurobehavioral challenges. So brain-based differences, that result in um, behavioral symptoms. And those behaviors are often challenging, bizarre, confusing for the parent. And I really, what I do is help them shift just what you talked about um, in your intro already, shift from this behavioral lens that they see their child through and um, help them see their child through a brain-based lens. And it'll become really clear, I think, through our conversation why I only work with the parents. Um, beyond that, in my um, personal parenting journey, I have two kids. One is a 12-year-old who um, society would consider neurotypical. And then my daughter, who is 11, there's only 15 months between them, she has significant neurobehavioral challenges. Um, and so I had been in social work for a very long time doing something completely different. And when I, when she was about three or so, I found myself going, what is going on? Why is nothing working with her. Things were working with my son and I thought I had it nailed down (laughs) on this whole parenting thing, but they were not working with her. And so that led me on this journey to figure out what does she need in terms of me parenting her differently than my son. And that's how I ended up doing this work today. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, we have a very similar path in that way that we were kind of guided by our kids and what we were looking for out there in the world, the information, the support that we maybe weren't finding or not finding enough of. 
it's always, I love talking to people who, who our journeys were kind of inspired by the kids that we have. I think it's really amazing. It certainly changed who I am in a big way. Um, having a kid with neurobehavioral or neurodevelopmental differences. Can we start by talking about what we mean when we say a brain-based lens and a behavior lens? We certainly have a very specific perspective, each of us, on parenting, and a lot of it is guided by society and you know the norms of where we live and what we've grown up around or the way that we've grown up and been parented. And I'm a huge believer that every single child, not just child with differences, needs to be parented as an individual. We need to create that journey specific to each of our kids. So when we're doing that, we need to look through this brain-based lens, but we often, I think, intuitively look at behavior, which you and I feel like is the, I don't want to say wrong, but definitely not the most helpful lens. So let's start by defining the two. Yeah, sure. And yeah, it's very, very easy to default back into that behavioral lens. As I always say, there's this is a lifelong journey and I will be growing in my understanding of my daughter through this brain-based lens for the rest of my life because she requires it. And, and also our society constantly is constantly pulling us back to that behavioral lens. So if you're a parent out there listening, don't feel bad about it. <laughs> it's completely yes. human to default into that behavioral lens. Um, but that neurobehavioral lens, seeing our child through a brain-based lens has so many benefits, improved connection for our child, improved self-esteem. Um, our relationship with them just can be in such a better place when we're able to maintain that perspective. And the way that I like to begin that conversation of what it really means is to talk about what neuroscience research tells us about the brain. Because then it's not my opinion or your opinion. It's like, no, this is actually neuroscience research telling us that when brains are altered in some way, structure, function, I mean, there's thousands upon thousands of reasons why a brain can be changed, then behaviors are usually the only symptoms. Behaviors and brains can never be separated. And so it would make sense that if a behavior, if a brain was changed in some way, that we would see behavior manifestation of that change. And that's why we say they're symptoms. The behaviors are the symptoms of that physical brain-based disability. And so if we think about, well, what would we do for a child who had a physical disability? Say they were, they had a disability of their lower extremities where they couldn't walk. Well, of course we would provide them with accommodations. Absolutely nobody would argue that. And it, this is the same idea. We look at our child, we say, okay, they have a brain that's wired differently, works differently, however we want to talk about it. And that's a physical part of our body. And so it requires accommodations. Not only do accommodations work, they help our child be more successful and settle in their environment, but it's also what's right and what's just. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so many people get upset when we compare the experience of ADHD or autism with those physical disabilities, like a child who cannot walk and needs a wheelchair, but that it's very similar experience. You know, our kids have limitations in some aspects based on the differences in their brain that 
cause a reason for them to need some accommodation. And Mm -hmm. people really don't give enough weight and value to that, to the differences, how impactful they are in our kids' lives and as adults as well. Yeah. I mean, what what I have come to believe is that most of us have the luxury of never considering what our brain does for us every day, (laughs) every second of every day. And it's not until you are parenting a child or have someone in your close circle of friends or family who have a brain, who has a brain that works very, very differently. And therefore those seemingly easy cognitive tasks that we perform automatically without thinking about it, when you see that that that's not the case for them, then you start to to be able to recognize the full weight of like how amazing our brain is and what it does for us, and also how much we've always taken for granted. <laughs> yeah. So the, the other piece that I think really can get in the way is that because our brain is invisible to us, um, unlike a child who's in a wheelchair, this disability is invisible to the outside world. Our children most of the time look what we would consider neurotypical. The only thing we see are these challenging behaviors. And so they are most at risk, the most vulnerable in terms of being misunderstood because there isn't this shift to like, oh, let's think about, is this about will or is it about skill, right? The whole Ross Green kind of perspective. Um, and most of the time it's seen as willful, intentional defiance rather than skill. I love that. Yeah, I talk a lot about looking at your child's intention. There's what the behavior looks like on the surface, and we often quickly label or judge that behavior, but was that actually the intention? Was your child's intention to be disrespectful to you, to hurt your feelings, to refuse to do homework, for instance? And most of the time, the intention isn't there. Exactly. And I, and I also understand that for some parents, especially if there's been kind of that clash, that behavior lens clash going on for many, many years, and they're just now starting to believe that maybe there's something else going on, that it is about brain function, um, that it can still seem like a leap of faith to believe. <laughs> That your child right. really isn't trying to ruin everything, isn't trying to be, you know, completely oppositional with you all the time. And so I get that. I think that's a very normal human reaction. And so I say to parents when I'm working with them and that comes up, what if, what if just for the next few days, every time you were met with a challenging behavior, you took that leap of faith and believed that it was about brain function and not about willful defiance. What do you think would happen? Like, let's play that out and how that might look, what path that might lead you down versus jumping to the conclusion that it is willful and what path that leads you down. Because time and time again, when parents take that leap of faith and they're like, okay, everything in my being is telling me that it's willful, but I'm going to take this leap of faith and ask that question, what if, what if this has to do with their brain working differently? What if this has to do with lagging skills? Every single time it opens up new possibilities, new options in terms of how to support them, new ways in terms of responding to them and deeper connection. Like you just don't go wrong <laughs> going down that path, yes. but it is, it is a journey for sure. 
So very much, yes. Yes. And when we are being mindful about it in a way, you know, in the way that we're asking, could this be something else and what could it be? It's giving us the opportunity to remain calm, to be empathetic, to validate how our kids are feeling, to, you know, we're modeling so much more in the way that we respond. You know, if my child is angry, he's slamming things, he's just not managing some frustration in an appropriate, healthy way, my probably biological instinct is to mirror that behavior, right? To be angry in my tone, to raise my voice. But what I'm telling my child when I do that is that that is the way you should react when you're frustrated and angry. And that is not what, you know, we're actually reinforcing the behavior we want to change by doing that. Um, And it's hard to step back and really think about that. You know, I like the phrase that we need to respond to our kids rather than react, because that really helps me define those two things in my mind to say, okay, if I'm just reacting, that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is put some thought into it and be mindful of what I'm doing so that I can respond. Exactly. And that I think is where we get into parents and we, and we, we all fall prey to this because we're human, our deeply held beliefs and values and how they can clash in those moments with those behaviors. And so what I'm always talking to parents about is, it is, it is a wonderful thing to want to teach your child, say, responsibility, for an example. Like nobody would argue with that. That's the job of a parent. But when your child has failed to meet your expectations and in that moment you launch into lecturing and consequences and exerting your control, are you teaching them responsibility? Are you really getting to what you want to teach them in that moment? Because not only we could talk a lot about why they couldn't meet the expectation. Was it in line with the way that they're, where their skills are? But in that moment, if you're dysregulated and they're dysregulated, I mean, again, neuroscience research shows us like thinking brains are offline. They can't process what you're saying. You're wasting your valuable energy (laughs) trying to resolve it in that moment. So take a step back calm things down and circle back. There's always the opportunity to circle back and lead with empathy and talk about what happened. It does not have to be in that moment. And also, because of the lagging skills that your child may have, they may it may be impossible for them to even participate in that conversation in that moment, leading to greater frustration on both sides. So while it, while it can sound very complicated, because you and I are kind of now talking about all the different layers to this, what it comes down to really is understanding that regulation piece, the relationship piece, the lagging skills and what that means. Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest ahas for me, and it came many years after my son's diagnosis, was the physiology of what happens when we get super emotional or, you know, have this emotional intensity that as the emotion rises and kind of floods, the cognitive part of the brain that thinks and rationalizes is coming offline. You literally cannot physically use that cognitive area of your brain or 
to the best of its ability when you are flooded with emotion. And when you recognize that no matter how much you try to rationalize or even dole out consequences, they're not processing it because they can't. Not because they're having a great time melting down and flipping out because they're not, right? right? You know, if we really think about it in that way, if we really boil it down to not even intention, but would my child choose to have this behavior right now if they were neurotypical and everything was, you know, firing on all cylinders, And this is where that brain-based piece really comes in when you recognize that they're not able to use the cognitive thinking part of their brain in those moments, then that's a guide for us. You know, that really just opens the door to the more appropriate ways to handle it that we're talking about. Right. And in addition to that, I often think about what cognitive skills are involved in us just having a conversation. And I put just kind of in quotation marks. I actually call this the art of having a conversation because it's actually quite complicated. Yes. Which is why so many of our kids at even older ages struggle with this. But if you think about what if a child is, um, you know, a 10 second child in a one second world, their, their verbal processing speed is slow. What if they have executive functioning skill problems or challenges where they can't emotionally regulate, even on a good day, they can't manage that frustration or that emotional kind of dissonance tolerance. Um, What if their abstract thinking is challenged? And so they have a really difficult time putting themselves in someone else's shoes and taking on someone else's perspective and understanding how their actions actually impact others. What if all of those things are true at baseline on a good day? And then here we are with the increased dysregulation that you've just so beautifully described and our brains being offline on top of that. That's why I always say to parents, like it's, it's our, it's our knee jerk visceral reaction to jump into lecturing, gaining control, exerting our control, showing our authority. But if you can even just a moment, have a moment to take that step back and remember all of this that we're talking about, it's like, okay, this conversation can happen. It just needs to happen a lot later. And it's all because of brain function. Yes, there was, I believe it was the episode with Rachel and Stephanie from the Learn Smarter podcast, where I believe Steph described kind of this analogy. In in that conversation, we were talking about executive functioning, but this works for emotions and many other things too. If you have a water bottle and you put it under the tap and you're filling it up at the sink and you're putting more and more in it. So maybe you're asking more and more of the emotional regulation and awareness. At some point, it's full and it cannot take any more. Mm-hmm. And what do you do in that moment? Do you keep trying to put more water in it? Are you going to succeed if you keep trying to get more into it? No, of course not. Um, and that's, you know, I think too, a really nice analogy for kind of the intensity and the emotional flooding when they're so overwhelmingly full of emotion and dysregulation, we can't 
add anything to it, there's no room. There's, there's no way for it to get in and be useful. Right. Oh, yeah. I love that visual. And yeah, I've, I've heard it also described as a fuel tank, like executive function yes. fuel tank where kids get on empty, which is also another way, way to visualize exactly what you're describing. And I love that. Yeah. I say to parents oftentimes, like, how would it feel for you to know that in those moments, your only responsibility was to keep your regulation intact and help your child regulate? Like, how would that feel for you? And sometimes it's really anxiety provoking because it's like, uh, it feels like it's not active enough. And I am here to tell all the parents listening <laughs> that it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. It takes practice. It's very, very active. And it also will provide these huge benefits in terms of then being able to have these conversations and these teachable moments that every parent so desperately wants to have with their kids. It just has to come later. Yeah, there's so much power to mindfulness in parenting and having an awareness. And it's a skill that we have to practice and build. And Dr. Mark Burton talks about mindfulness like going to the gym. If you stop going to the gym, your muscles are going to weaken. And the same is true for practicing mindfulness, that if Mm -hmm. you... Do it for a little while and then, you know, six months down the road, you don't want to practice anymore. You're done with it. It it doesn't totally stick. It's something that we have to keep working on. Just like our perspective or our attitude about different things with our kids, behavior, or even our attitude about the fact that we have a child that has a disability. You know, we can look at that in a very negative way or in a more positive way. And all of those things take this practice, practice, practice on really being aware, being aware before you respond, being aware before you even make a face at your, you know, before your face responds even, um, you know, at, when you talked about baseline, I just wanted to run back to that for a minute because it made me think about you know, a parent sitting down and writing down that baseline for their child, really kind of cementing it. And I know it's something that's going to have to be fluid and will change as our kids change, but using that as a baseline is Mm -hmm. really, really helpful. You know, even writing it down is going to help you remember it better in those moments when Mm -hmm. it's so hard to take control of ourselves and rein ourselves back as parents. Right. Oh, I would agree a hundred percent. I also think the value in writing it down is that then you start to see where it shows up in your child's life in all the different environments. So not just at home in your relationship with them, but like, huh, maybe this is why they struggle in friendships. Maybe this is why they struggle at school. Maybe this is why they struggle in this particular after school activity, but not this one. Like what's different in the environment that does or does not match kind of those baseline lagging skills that we're now aware of. And that's where accommodations then come in. So the discussion is about, okay, if I, if I know that they um, have a particularly hard time with this, this particular cognitive skill, now I know where I can kind of play that out and see where that might come up in their life and then put in accommodations, ask for accommodations, start to create accommodations so that there's no longer that poorness of fit and they can settle in that environment in ways that maybe they haven't 
been able to up until now. Yeah. I mean, it's monumentally important that we understand our kids and at a much, much deeper level. You know, I talk about that we have to get to know our kids and people will say, well, of course I know my child. I know my kid, right? But we're talking about a much, much deeper understanding of our kids in the way that their brain functions in all of these different aspects in sensory input and the response that we have neurologically to that in executive functioning and thinking and processing speed and processing language and emotion, like everything. Our brain controls everything about our being. And when we think about it in those terms, it's so amazingly powerful because now when my child is super smart, but he never ever writes down his homework or turns in his homework if he does it, I understand why. Instead of judging that he's lazy which would be that behavior lens, I'm understanding what's going on in his brain that makes that more difficult for him. And then I can find ways to accommodate, just as you were talking about. Right, right. And and the other piece that I would add to that is that I think the other thing that I've seen in my own parenting journey and with the parents that I've worked with is that once they start to see these new kind of layers of understanding about their child, where those lagging skills are, then they also start to understand the full weight of it and they can't unsee it. And I think that is a good thing because it's, it's critical to, to our relationship with our child and their success and their ability to settle. And also there can be a lot of grief and sadness that accompanies that, right? Like, For example, I know that my child always had a bad memory, but my goodness, they cannot remember this routine that they literally do on a daily basis without me reminding them on a daily basis. And when they understand that that's where their child's challenges with learning and memory really are right now, it can be like, oh, what does this mean for them? What does it mean for me? Right? We can do a lot of future tripping and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Wanting to recognize that and also how important it is to try to pull yourself back from that (laughs) and stay in the moment and know that with those accommodations, with that new understanding, there is much more hope there than anyone I feel like anyone leads us to believe about our kids. Oh, it's such a relief when you finally really understand your child's behaviors and where they're coming from on a neurological basis it's a huge weight lifted because I think with that sort of behavior judgment, those, the way that we label it and talk about it and use language that really denotes character flaw, it's very emotionally heavy for us to say, I have this lazy, disrespectful kid, right? When you think about it that way, it does not feel good. And you're more desperate, I think, to change the behavior then and not really acting from a very clear thinking space. But when you understand it, truly understand it, it's just so much more clear, which then makes it, I don't want to say easier, but it really is easier. It's not easy, Mm -hmm. but it is easier. And emotionally, we're not really struggling with that friction of thinking that it's willful 
instead of understanding that it's the brain. Yep. Yep. It leads you on a completely different path with your child and your relationship with them. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Because we've just, we describe this and we talk about it as, um, you and I have been immersed in this work for a while. And so we can say without a doubt that it, like you said, it's not easy, but it's easier. And there's so much hope there, improve relationships, all that kind of stuff. And also, I remember what it was like when I was completely lost. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to go, what the heck is going on? And that, that, that what you talked about in terms of the benefits of, you know, meditation and uh, what I think of it as just nervous system health, building your nervous system health. And really what it is, is building your resilience. That's why that is so important. And I feel like in the beginning of my journey, if someone would have told me like these little things that you do every day actually do make a difference. Like you must, even if they're just these small drops in the bucket, they're they're actually big drops and keep doing them. I would have been like, seriously? (laughs) (laughs) But now I know, could be having the benefit of looking back, like, oh my goodness, yes. I mean, that's what we're talking about is resiliency, nervous system health, and being able to then stay regulated more of the time, right? That's in a very easy, easy nutshell. Um, But that's why I talk about this as lifelong work, right? And I choose Mm -hmm. to have that be liberating, like, okay, I don't have to have it perfect. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to have it everything right in this moment because this is a journey where I continue to grow in my understanding for the rest of my life. There's no deadline. I love that. I hadn't really thought about it in that way because we do think about these milestones for our kids and we have a whole list of things that we think have to be in place or have happened before you reach that milestone. For instance, my son is going to be 18 this year. And when he was littler and we understood less, we found ourselves saying, you know, well, he's going to be an adult. He's going to have to do this or that or be able to do this or that. And while that's true, it doesn't have to be at 18. Who said it has to be at 18? Um, Mm -hmm. He's certainly not going to move out and be totally self-sufficient the day he turns 18. So why am I so worried about that deadline? It's really self-imposed. And it's so freeing to let go of just those little things, just the tiny little things like my kid should be able to move away from home when he's 18. Well, no, he shouldn't necessarily. It may not be right for him and that's okay. And that's such a relief, you know, yeah. and, and I've coached parents who had high school seniors and were like, in a few months, my kid has to go away to college. And how are we going to do this? How is he going to succeed? We have to teach him all of these skills before right. that happens. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, first you need to say, is this timing right for my kid? Is this really what is appropriate and doable at this moment. And for some kids with differences, it is. You know, I'm not saying that no child with ADHD or autism or neurobehavioral differences can go to college right out of high school and succeed. That's totally not true. But for a lot of our kids, that timing, that deadline just isn't right for them. Um, maybe four-year university isn't right for them. I've talked a lot about that recently on the podcast because for my own son, that's not the path that he wants to take. And I feel now 
completely at peace with that, that he can still be a successful, happy adult without having a four-year degree. When my kids were babies, I would have thought that absolutely they must have four-year degrees or their life is going to be ruined and wasted. You know, it's all these shifts. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's, I think that's why this work is so complicated. This is exactly, by the way, why I only work with parents. Yes. <laughs> me too. When parents ask me to work with their kids, I'm like, well, no, that's, that's not how this works. Your kids are who they are. It's unfortunately about us doing all this hard work and really getting clear about what our deeply held beliefs and values are. And so, I mean, you just very, you very beautifully articulated some of those that you had, right? For your degree, launching, off to college, all of that kind of stuff. And what if that's not the only way? Like, where did that belief and that value come from? And we all have them. We all have them. And parenting these kids make us even more aware of what those are. But I had a very similar experience. My daughter is 11, so younger than your son. But when she was very little, um, one of our extended family members said, do you think we are just starting to get an understanding of the significance of her challenges? And she said, do you think she'll ever be able to live independently? And I was shocked by that question. It had not occurred to me. And I was like, of course she will. I mean, my first reaction was, of course, like defensiveness and like, absolutely she will, because that's, that's what kids do. That's what my kids do. And now that she's 11, I think, well, you know, I don't know. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. She could surprise us and live completely independently. Chances are she won't. She'll need some level of support. But that's that long journey of acceptance and long journey of understanding where she is and where I need to adjust to support her. And I always talk to parents about the quickest path to burnout is not understanding where your expectations are in comparison to where your child's skills are. That when that gap is great, and as kids get older, it usually widens because the expectations for our kids rise exponentially as they get older, and they may be on their own trajectory, their own unique path. And if if parents really can't get clear on that, then that is going to lead to burnout faster than anything else that I can, can imagine. Yes, expectations that are defined based on our kids' neurology and that are doable for our kids, achievable, makes such a huge difference. And Mm -hmm. when we're not stressing so much about that future stuff, we're really leaving more room to work on what's happening right now. And working on what's happening right now, those skills will automatically influence that future thing that we're so engrossed with worrying about. Like, will your daughter be able to live on her own someday? If all you do is worry about that right now, you don't have any space to work on the skills that may mean that she could, right? We, we get so caught up and we use up all of that space and energy for things that aren't helpful instead of, you know, kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, today or this week, where are we? What do we need to do? My son has really struggled with school always, but this year in high school, his junior year has been the most monumentally difficult. And he has probably threatened to quit or say he's quitting 30 or 40 times, I would say, in the last nine months easily. Um, And he did quit going in person earlier in the year, he just said, I can't do it anymore. And he's 
he's just so done with struggling so much to be understood, to be um, able to succeed, you know, to fit in that environment has been just really, really challenging for him. So I have just been trying to kind of take a step back and say, okay, right now we have these four classes we need to get through them. They all count for graduation, right? They're all, and we're having, and with everything shifting at home, it's been so, so much harder to get him to do it because he's struggled with school refusal since fourth grade. So for years we've dealt with that, but now it's not even a matter of getting him somewhere. It's a matter of getting him to do school at home and get online and be willing. And, you know, there have been weeks where he didn't do any work all week. And then we spent maybe Sunday doing this big intensive school day to get caught up on things, um, which to me would be so much more stressful and harder. And it is as the parent watching that, it's so much more stressful. But for him, it was what he needed. He needed a few days to just say, I'm not going to do any of this stuff because today I just need to chill and I need to, you know, control my emotions about what's going on in the world and all of those things that also are weighing really heavily. And I had to do a lot of work to really stop pushing. And I'll say I didn't stop for sure because now he just finished his classes for this year, Monday. So now he only has three classes to graduate. He's going to be able to finish high school in a shorter amount of time. He, you know, and so for me, it's been like the end is right there. Why are you not reaching for it? You know, and right. to really understand his perspective and be able to push enough to stay on track, but not so much that I just force him to shut down, which happens. So. You know, people right. like us who really understand this, who really work in it, we're very engrossed at looking at the neurology and understanding our kids. We even have times where we fall into old patterns, right? Where we are right. not doing the very best that we could be doing with what we know. It's just human nature. Um, so I want to be sure that we let parents know, you know, you're never going to be the perfect parent. You're never going to be able to step back and respond rather than, than react and think about all these layers that we've just talked about in every right. situation. You're just not. Right. No, it's, it's, it's not. That would be an, a level of perfection that I'm sorry, but none of us can attain. <laughs> There is no such thing as perfection. <laughs> right, right. But what you described too is, yeah, I know you and I talked briefly before we hit record about the membership community I have called the Resilience Room. And it's for parents of kids with neurobehavioral challenges. And my reason for creating that community was that parents felt alone. Like I would have parents saying to me, no one would believe me if I told them what their day, what my day was like today. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's others. <laughs> I just talked to someone last hour. They, they would understand. So I thought exist. I need to bring these parents together. But the other reason why, and maybe the greater reason why, was because I understand intimately how hard it is to stay on this neurobehavioral brain-based path of parenting day in and day out. You have to have these touchstones, you have to have a community of people who see their kids through the same lens, right? Their kids aren't just ruining everything and disrespectful and all those very 
behavior lens judgmental words. They can come to the conversation with this happened last night. I'm curious about these things. Do you have any suggestions for me on what could be going on from this brain based lens? And so having that community makes you, of course, feel less alone, but also helps you stay on that path um, when you feel like you're about to go off the rails down the behavioral path, which again, happens to all of us from time to time. Yeah. And you and I do this work. We're thinking about this almost all day, most days of the week, right? We're, we're entrenched in looking at this brain-based lens and what behavior means and behavior is a symptom and all these things. And most parents are not. Most parents have another job or they're doing something different with the majority of their day. And so that gives you even greater level of having to practice it and having to be mindful of what you're doing and to reach out to the community and say, this is my challenge. Can somebody help me because I'm losing it? You know, I have this private Facebook group, which I think today will hit 5,000 people in the community. And so often the posts will start with, I'm about to lose it, (laughs) right? I'm about to lose it. This behavior is happening. I'm about to lose it. That's happening. And we need a place to be able to speak that truth and be authentic, but also to, to get the right advice and support and even wisdom from parents who are ahead of us in this journey. Parents who have older yeah. kids um, is really valuable too. And just to keep your focus in the right place and then your attitude in the right perspective too. I love that you have the resilience room and resilience is so hard. It's hard for us when we have child kids with differences. We need that extra support for that. Yeah, I was going to say it is hard. There's many things that can chip away at it pretty quickly in this parenting experience. And also, it's absolutely necessary. I mean, our lives literally depend on it. That could be a whole nother podcast episode. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, because the way we manage stress and even the way we think about negative things that happen to us, it's affecting our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health. And I do have podcast episodes on that because it was a journey that I took fairly recently and it really changed my life and it really helped my whole family when I stopped thinking as though I'm the victim and everything happens to me and I have no control over anything and I just wasn't meant to be happy, which is what I actually thought until age 40. Talk about relief and a weight being lifted when you realize that it's all about your perspective and your attitude and that you do have control, that you do have control of a lot of things that we often just automatically assume we don't. Right. Well, and I loved hearing about, I love hearing about your Facebook group and the shifting of perspectives that that you do in there. Because I also say to parents, another thing that research has shown us over and over again is that compassion fatigue and caregiver burnout is not only real, but it is contagious. And so I say, choose your support wisely. So if you're in a group where that perspective shifting is not happening, and it's just kind of like venting, venting, venting with no one saying, oh, that's so hard. They see you, they hear you. That's really important. And also, how can we get you to a better place? How can we help you and your child get to a better place? Then that's only going to bring you down further. So 
those parents. Keeping that in mind, <laughs> choose your support wisely. <laughs> yes. I did an episode on the language that we use to describe our kids and their behavior and really being mindful of it and shifting it. So instead of saying, my kid's disrespectful, I might say, my child's having a hard time managing his frustration and it's coming out in the way that he's talking to me because he's dysregulated. And mm-hmm. I had a listener email me and say that she, after listening to that episode, left a Facebook support group on ADHD, parenting kids with ADHD, because it was exactly that. It was all this really negative. And she said that she found herself using that language, getting sucked into it because it was kind of this machine, you know, and you're getting that taste of it constantly in your feed. And so she actually left the group because she realized that it really was pulling her down and causing her to then, you know, have that same perspective or use that same language for her own son. Yep. Our language is powerful. No doubt about it. It's amazing. You know, I, I've talked about this before on the podcast too, but I've always thought that this was kind of hippy dippy stuff, <laughs> like mindfulness <laughs> and, you know, practicing optimism and just thinking about the way that we look at the world, you know, thinking about our own attitude, perspective and thoughts. And they are so monumentally powerful. And I never believed that until I got to a breaking point and had to say, okay, I'm going to figure out a different way. I'm not going to be this person. I don't want to be this person anymore. Um, I want a better life experience. And then when I really started getting into it, I realized that it's monumentally powerful. Like, And then I think, oh my gosh, I wasted four decades of some negative Nelly when I could have been happier. But, you know, we really do have so much power in our thoughts, even the thoughts that we think and we don't share with anyone else. Well, and you didn't know what you didn't know. Yes. I'm saying, I'm saying that to parents all the time. And that was certainly the case for me, which is why you and I both do this work. And then when you know, you can do better. You do better. Right? So, yep. so anyone that's listening out there that is feeling like, oh, so, you know, we can, ha- we can be so hard on ourselves and that lack of compassion for our journey and our learning curve and the shame that can come with not knowing what we didn't know. So be gentle with yourself. And yes. It's a, it's a journey. <laughs> We're outlining a perfect world here. And we have to be very clear. I think that it can't be perfect. You know, you have to have times where you give yourself some grace. You're going to make mistakes. Um, That's just being human. And while we can outline best case scenario here talking about it, that's not real life. And it's not even real life for us. We even trip up sometimes too. And I I just want to hammer that home a little harder for everyone so they can give themselves some grace. I so appreciate the time and the wisdom and the lived experience that you've shared with everyone here. It's so valuable, so many good insights that can help parents start to make a similar shift to the shift that you and I have made and so many other parents who are seeing more success through that shift as well. For links to connect with Eileen, um, her website, her Resilience Room membership community, Facebook and Instagram, all those links will be in the show notes. 
And you can get those show notes at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 093 for episode 93. And I just, I thank you again, Eileen. It was so great to have this conversation with you and get connected. Oh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation a lot. So appreciate being here. Fantastic. With that, I will end the episode and I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com. 